Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. But you also had people that were very fine people. Very fine people on both sides. And the, and the aliens would mind meld and give them the technology. They're bad aliens. So the, uh, Are you surprised the Nazis were influenced by demons? No, if demons are real, I would definitely think they'd be on the side of the Nazis. Yeah. McDonald's is connected to the Clintons. They chop up the bodies and put them into the sausage and hamburgers. People are being cannibalized. Look it up. And I'm watching CNN talk about this as violent white nationalist protests. We have done everything in our power to keep this peaceful, you know? It's uh, Pepe's become kind of a symbol. Good afternoon, gentle listeners, and welcome to Yeah Na Pasaran, a show about fascism and its gravediggers. I'm Cam Smith. I'm Andy Fleming. And joining us from New York City is Christopher Matthias, who is a reporter with Huffington Post covering the far right. Thanks for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. I guess just to begin with, Chris, uh, how did you come to find yourself on the far right beat? So I've been at HuffPost for a while and I used to cover criminal justice stuff and a lot of kind of the NYPD being bad. And I started covering, are you guys familiar with Stop and Frisk over there as like a police tactic? Yeah. So the NYPD was using that a lot in New York, normally against people of color. And then you know, I covered that for a while and then started covering. There was a big scandal here that the NYPD was surveying Muslim communities in Brooklyn and New Jersey and just kind of all throughout New York. And it was very egregious and dumb and bad. And that got me to covering Islamophobia more generally across the country. Namely, after the attacks in Paris, there was like a kind of a surge in Islamophobic incidents here. And obviously, like, you know, as Trump kind of came into power, he was expressing a lot of anti-Muslim sentiment. So at any rate, you know, covering Islamophobia kind of just segued naturally into covering the far right more generally, because it feels like Islamophobia, I think it's probably true in Australia too, is kind of the glue that binds a lot of far right movements together. At any rate, in summer of 2017, I found myself, I'm, I'm from a small town in Pennsylvania called Gettysburg, which obviously has some historical significance, it being, you know, the site of the biggest Civil War battle. And I ended up covering a neo-Confederate rally there. And it was very silly. It was a bunch of militia dudes, some KKK guys, and a bunch of like run-of-mill, like sons of Confederate veterans who, you know, just like love like kind of fetishize the confederate army and stuff so i was on the battlefield with these guys they had fallen for a fake facebook event which alleged that antifa was going to show up to the battlefield and pee on confederate graves um but the, the problem with that is that there are no confederate graves in gettysburg there are no marked confederate graves in gettysburg so antifa never showed up but a confederate guy did accidentally shoot himself in the leg wrote a good story about that and then later that summer our, me and my coworker Andy Campbell, our editors, sent us to Charlottesville, and so we were in Charlottesville for Unite the Right when you know everything went to shit and Heather Heyer got killed. And we were there for four or five days, and then when we got back, our editor in chief in the time sat me and Andy down at a bar and told us that this was our job now and that um, that we were going to be covering the far right for a while. And yeah, and that's what I've been doing ever since. Chris, just out of interest, you said you were from or grew up in. Gettysburg, and there was this uh, neo-Confederate event that you reported on. 
What's your sense in terms of the general history of how the Confederacy is understood uh, and what it means, its significance among contemporary Americans in, in that part of the world? And do you think there's been a kind of nostalgic revival for some sense of the, the South when it was uh, glorious? Or is it the case that this is just a, you know, a tendency that's always been present that, that comes to the fore at certain points? Yeah, man. I think it's probably like, I mean, there's a push and pull because like, I think it definitely comes to the fore at different points when the kind of the far rider is like resurgent, like we've seen over the last five years or whatever. Like, I mean, the the Confederate stuff has just been at the center of so many incidents. And it really is like the battle over how people remember the Confederacy here is really like a battle for like, the type of, of like it's it's kind of the center of everything I, I think a friend of mine always likes to say that the civil war never ended uh like we've been fighting that battle ever since and you know obviously charlottesville revolved around a statue of general lee and where i grew up in gettysburg you know you, you would think in a place like gettysburg which was the site of the biggest defeat of the confederate army that people would be less susceptible to kind of misinformation and mis like deliberate misremembering of what the confederate army was all about but that's actually not the case at all. You know, I grew up listening to teachers tell me that the Civil War wasn't about slavery, it was about states' rights. You know, watching movies like the movie Gettysburg, which is an enjoyable movie to watch, but it very much embraces like this like lost cause mythology, right? That that uh, there was a noble cause that the Confederacy was pursuing, and that it was this kind of brothers on both sides of the war, and it was just kind of this noble, tragic war and, and it prevents the confederacy very sympathetically and that's, that that kind of stuff is just it's just everywhere and I, I guess the flip side to that though is that we have seen so much movement over the last few years of confederate statues getting torn down and of schools being renamed and so forth and so on like hundreds of monuments been torn down i think some of the most significant inspiring moments for the last few years here have been seeing like young people and students like tear down these statues which which happened like immediately after Charlottesville I remember but yeah I mean I think like the the confederacy and the lost cause is at the heart of of the American far right it's like a, a fundamental part of kind of American fascism one thing I thought was curious about Charlottesville is there's there appeared to be a, a convergence of forces various forces on the far right, including neo-Confederates, but also featuring prominently individuals such as Richard Spencer, who I understand attended the University of Virginia and yet would in otherwise otherwise represent a different um, demographic, a college-educated, you know, erudite, fascist propagandist. And yet following Charlottesville, that, uh, I guess, well, my question is, what's become of those forces post-Charlottesville? Because it seems to be the case that Richard Spencer is one of many whose stars have kind of dimmed over time. Yeah, no, I mean, they're, they're a mess. <laughs> like, people are in prison, in hiding. All the, a lot of the groups have disbanded. So, like, yeah, so, like, Richard Spencer, for example, is, I think, back home in Montana with his parents. He is from a very wealthy family and actually, interestingly, likes to, you know, speaking of the Confederacy and slavery, likes to talk about his family's history as slave owners. But yeah, he, I think, basically just went broke from the lawsuits that he was facing as a result of Charlottesville and had to kind of move back in with mom and dad in uh, in Whitefish, Montana. And then, you know, some of the other prominent groups like Identity Europa, they kept getting infiltrated and doxxed 
and eventually disbanded. One of their leaders, one of their leaders in Charlottesville, this guy Eli Mosley, stole some valor <laughs> and tried to claim that he was an Iraq War veteran. And it turns out he was just in the Pennsylvania National Guard, uh, but was never deployed overseas. And so he kind of went away in shame and then has like basically been in hiding because he's avoiding this lawsuit and not. I don't know if anyone really knows where, where he's at. And then, oh man, who else? Matt Heimbach from the Traditionalist Workers' Party. It's hard to keep track of, um, but Tra- Traditionalist Workers' Party also kind of fell apart. He also had an incident where he was caught sleeping, caught making out with his stepbrother's stepdad's girlfriend. It was real complicated. His, I think his stepbrother or stepdad uh, was looking through a window and saw Matt Heimbach making out with his girlfriend or wife or whatever. And they had a big incident falling out and which kind of precipitated the end of the traditionalist workers party. So, and then, and then of course you had the national nationalist socialist movement, which is kind of the more straight up neo-Nazi group led by Jeff Scoop. And Jeff a year or two ago claimed to leave the movement altogether is now uh, claiming to help de-radicalize people. Although I'm kind of skeptical of that, but at any, at any rate, this is kind of a long way of saying that after Charlottesville, anti-fascist organizing here was really effective because people got deplatformed, they got doxxed, they got exposed, they got fired. Like there was real social consequences created for having attended that rally. And I actually think we're seeing like a lot of parallels to that with what happened on January 6th at the Capitol. You know, in the few months since then, we've seen all these people get exposed and, and doxxed and arrested. I think there's a lot of people that maybe regret having participated in that. You mentioned people stealing valor. You've also reported extensively, I guess, on people coming from the other side, uh, not stealing valor, but perhaps hiding their power level within the military. How big of a problem is the far right for the US military? And have you seen the US military's approach to this issue change over the years? Yeah. So it's definitely a problem. It's always a problem that's kind of hard to get great numbers about, but it's you talk to most military, to a lot of veterans, and they'll tell you that's you know what a crazy problem it is. Like extremists are attracted to the military for a lot of reasons. One of which is to get you know combat training that they can then use for you know maybe to inflict on civilian targets. But you know, I first started kind of covering this a couple of years ago when there was a big infiltration of Identity Europa's chat groups, and Unicorn Riot got a hold of all their chats. And using their chats and working with a couple of anti-fascist researchers, we were able to find 12 active duty servicemen in Identity Europa. Since those stories published, I think half of them were kicked out and half of them have been allowed to stay in, which I think kind of tells you a lot about how the American American military approaches extremism. Uh, which is to say it's like very uneven and disorganized and they will often let people that are straight up neo-Nazis stay in if they, you know, show the slightest bit of remorse. And it's like very much up to, up to like commander's individual discretion as to, you know, what punishment they face. But oftentimes I wouldn't be surprised if those commanders are often sympathetic to far-right white nationalist views. That That kind of changed over after the insurrection because the initial reports showed such a like a high number of veterans and military people with military affiliation storming the capital and our secretary of defense uh, Lloyd Austin 
issued like this stand down order, which basically required all commanders over like a month period to sit down with their troops and have like a discussion about extremism and the dangers of extremism and how it's not acceptable, which, you know, isn't the, the, it's basically just like an elaborate talking to, it's not like much of a, it's really, I don't know how much that's really going to accomplish, but now the Pentagon is like trying to claim that they are, you know, going to increase standards for who they let into the military that, you know, maybe they'll, they'll be a little harsher when it comes to discipline. And I think we're just kind of waiting to see how that all pans out. After they had, after the Secretary of Defense announced this stand-down order, I actually did a story about this guy named Sean McCaffrey, who was mixed up with Identity Europa back in the day, and ever since has been like hosting um, this like super racist, anti-Semitic podcast. And he's, he's kind of been tied in with like the whole Groyper scene here, like with Nick Fuentes and that crew. But yeah, I found out that he graduated in graduated from boot camp in March, like so a month after this stand down order happened, and it was very much like an issue of like had a recruiter bother to Google his name, a lot of shit would have come up. So right now we're just kind of waiting. It's going to be really interesting to see what happens to him because I could foresee the military allowing him to stay in because they don't understand what how far like American far right extremism works. He'll have some like possible deniability and claim that he's not actually racist, or they're going to actually be for like kind of PR purposes, like just kick him out pretty fast. But we should know within a couple of weeks if, if he's allowed to stay in. You're listening to Yana Passaran on 3CR, 8.55am, 3cr.org.au and 3CR Digital on your DAB radio. We're currently talking to Christopher Matthias from the Huffington Post about the far right. And so do you think that the Trump's replacement with uh, Biden, does that signal a shift not only in terms of military or potential shift not only in terms of military recruiting practices but i guess how else do you think uh, the biden presidency is in a better or worse position to address uh, these sorts of questions including more general questions about racism and islamophobia and, and and so on yeah i mean it's it's a really good question i mean it's obviously a relief to a certain extent just because i mean obviously the insurrection at the capitol was evidence i think of what a lot of reporters on this beat here have been trying to scream about for years, which is that, you know, this is very much a kind of fascist insurrectionist like mass movement that's been been emboldened uh, over the last four years because they've had their guy in, in the White House. So the fact that we that he did lose and that we did kind of beat back this attempt to steal the election, you know, you can't help but feel some relief there. But, you know, as for Biden, I'm skeptical of how their of their general approach to uh, the far right. I think you know he Biden comes from this very kind of bipartisan conciliatory uh, approach to the right and to the Republican Party, which I don't know how effective that's going to be for beating it back. And I think he is also you know the Democratic Party has often especially when it comes to Islamophobia, you know, kind of participated in it and been very willing to kind of betray, uh, like, my Muslim neighbors and friends, you know, and encouraged the government to survey on Muslims and, and so on and so forth. I think they also often, what the Democratic Party is very bad about is throwing the left under the bus all the time. Will often, you know, they like to do the whole kind of both sides thing where, you know, it's extremism on both sides and there's, you know, something in the center. 
that's that's better and good. And you know, I think they'll they're the type of people that will gladly participate participate in prosecuting Black Lives Matter protesters and and anti fascist protesters that you know have been engaged in this kind of revolutionary moment here over the last year. I, I don't have a ton of faith in the Democratic Party's ability to really confront the far right here, especially when they keep kind of throwing the more radical left here under the bus, which even though it's the radical left that kind of makes shit happen and is on the front lines. I guess the, the Biden administration may uh, offer some opportunities to confront far-right extremists in the military and, and in various other policies, but it would probably be unwise to entrust the fight against fascism to uh, President Biden or his administration, it seems. Is that an accurate enough summary? If, yeah. Yeah, no, totally. Yeah. I mean, I think that's, I think that's the, like, I think if you had talked to me five years ago, I just wouldn't have had as much perspective on, on all this as I do. And I think, you know, I was looking at the kind of all the guests you've had on, you guys have had on some really great guests. And I think some of them have probably had a, a bit of a similar journey to me, which is that the last few years has kind of like radicalized me a little bit. And I've learned and seen up, up close that, you know, like one of fascism's like greatest friends are kind of centrists and like centrist liberals a lot of times who are, you know, in some ways kind of allied with the goals of the far right and, and fascists. So yeah, I think you're absolutely right to put it that way that like you just, you know, can't really, there's a lot of reasons to not entrust this fight to someone like Biden or the Democratic Party. Well, I'll leave the pessimism to you two guys. I'm, personally, I'm optimistic that, you know, yeah. Uncle Joe's all about masking up. He's halfway to Black Block. No, well, it's true. It's true. Yeah, it's true. <laughs> and we got, we got secret anti-fa infiltrators all over Congress now. So, it's, yeah. <laughs> Chris, you've referred to the events at the Capitol on January 6th as an insurrection. Other people see it a... Uh, Slightly differently, some have described it as you know just an ordinary day out for tourists. Uh, we surprised at how quickly <laughs> the Republicans have revised history here. I mean, it's it's impressive. They've they've gotten to it pretty quick. I mean, it was always an inevitability, like they were going to have to rebrand it somehow. But it it is a little surprising how how quickly it's happened. I forgot. Yeah, I I, I can't believe they're going with the tourist thing. It's so crazy because I mean. Obviously, the footage is just so, they're so obviously not tourists. But yeah, I think they're like, I mean, from the get go, they were, you know, speaking of Antifa, like they were immediately trying to spin it as this, as this being not somehow representative of uh, their party. And they, you know, even went as far as to try to make this into, to claim it was Antifa, which is just absurd. But like that, that gained so much traction. Like they just have like such their own media ecosystem that they can kind of, bend to their will and talking points and and people will believe it. I, I remember I, I did a story on all the GOP, the Republican state and local lawmakers that were at the insurrection, you know, maybe necessarily didn't enter the Capitol if you did, but like we're outside on the steps or whatever. And I think we, we, we counted about 57 and about half of those in interviews after January 6th uh, attempted to blame leftist infiltrators in Antifa for the insurrection. And that, of course, has been rendered, those claims have been rendered absolutely absurd as we've like investigated who was there. And, you know, over 400 people have been arrested 
all of whom are clearly Trump supporters. So, yeah, I mean, the gall is is very impressive. I'll, I'll give him that. Uh, but it'll be cur- it'll be interesting to see how the next month or two works out with kind of this revisionist history. Speaking of media, you're writing for HuffPost, which has a you know a small but significant audience. However, there's other larger media organisations such as uh, Fox News, which seems to play a much more decisive role in uh, shaping American political discourse. I'm not sure exactly what uh, position uh, Fox News as a whole is is taking at the moment, but when I think about commentators like Tucker Carlson, it seems that while some have perhaps taken a step back from various forms of radicalisation, uh, Tucker seems to have fully embraced it. I'm wondering if you can comment on what effect you think his kinds of, you know, the, the vituperations he engages in about the left and, and uh, the, the demise of the white race and, and so on. And given the size of his audience, given that it's reaching an audience that has uh, sometimes been described as being a boomer often, um, do you think that his role, how important do you think his role is in uh, reaffirming and inculcating these sorts of fascist or proto-fascist attitudes in the American public? He's huge, yeah. He's someone that I'm going to be paying a lot of attention to this year and someone I'm really worried about because he's getting more and more extreme. And I think he is kind of inheriting, in a lot of ways, Trump's mantle and will be kind of the leader of whatever this fascist MAGA movement is. Uh, my, my editor is very much on the Tucker is going to run in 2024 train. And I think I think he might be right. Uh, I think Tucker might be might be gearing for that. But I mean, it's it's kind of hard to overstate how extreme. Like he he's always been just parroting white nationalist talking points on, on prime time to millions of people, and it's always been I think a, a really severe like radicalization vector here. But every time you don't you think he, he can't go further, he does. And like most recently, I think one of the most egregious examples was. Like Tucker was straight up talking about the Great Replacement on Fox News, you know, like the the same shit you read in Brenton Tarrant's manifesto is now being said on primetime cable in America uh, with a guy with a bow tie, and it's a really really scary development. You know, I think you guys are kind of familiar with this process, right? Like you see these talking points and conspiracy theories kind of hashed out on the the fringe and the far right. And then they slowly kind of make their way into the more mainstream, right? Yeah, I, I, I think like it's important to maintain a sense of shock. And I kept having to remind myself like of how batshit insane it is that Tucker is straight up talking about replacement on Fox News when everyone knows what that means and the origins of that have been well documented over the last few years. So, and right now, what I'm trying to figure out is like how. Tucker really gets stopped at this point because he isn't going to get like he's the future of Fox News. Fox News is kind of betting everything on Tucker. They're like expanding. He's like going to have like new shows and podcasts and stuff. It's there's it's he's it's not going to be like Tucker's going to get canceled for saying something too racist. Like he's already saying all that shit. So it's going to be kind of a matter of like like we were talking about earlier, like creating some social consequences for him, making what he does toxic. But as long as you know Fox News has a say, and as long as I guess the Murdochs have a say, Tucker will be where he is. Do, out of curiosity, do you guys have like a Tucker equivalent down there? 
I mean, one example that springs to mind is Sky News Australia is is basically Fox in Australia, right? Um, and they've they've recently, I think, publicly or semi semi publicly declared that that's the direction that they want to to go in. Right. So we have a whole series of commentators who are on during the evenings who are, you know, more or less they don't necessarily have the bow tie or you know they're not uh, uh, millionaire heirs, but they they perform the same kind of political function relatively small audiences but huge on social media mm. so on facebook on youtube that material is and i think one core audience is actually um uh, consumers in the united states so we've right. witnessed various kinds of memes that have been all sorts of things the sorts of things that uh, tucker carries on about appearing on sky news reaching a relatively small live audience but then on social media you know receiving thousands of shares and there's, it's yeah. a kind of a recognition on the part of the i guess uh, news corp that in terms of revenues in particular uh, social media is the place to be mm. so as part of that what they've also done speaking of the great replacement is lauren southern is now a regular commentator on sky news is she really and oh yeah yeah <laughs> uh, she's um she's kind of loved a beloved figure sky news there have been questions raised in australian parliament with regards to it so we recently had a a senate inquiry into into media in australia in parliament there were questions raised with the, the, the basically the level boss of sky news in australia who at first evinced um complete ignorance like what's a lower and southern i don't know what you're talking about mm-hmm. i'll take it on notice then some weeks later responded by saying oh well um we welcome a, a diversity of views and we don't pay her we don't actually pay her wage so the fact that we don't pay her an income or a salary means that you know we're not um, responsible for the sorts of things that she says she's just another person with an opinion and because we embrace free speech what's the problem however it was significant and I was going to ask you about this actually Chris in addition to the media uh, landscape adjacent to Fox News you have organizations within the United States closely tied to the Republican Party like the Conservative Political Action Conference mm. um which also serve as kind of fulcrums for these sorts of ideologies and and in a sense you know radicalized large sections or segments of the republican party a year or two ago i think it was 2019 or 2020 we have cpac australia it's it's importing the exact same model as sky news has adopted the fox news model and lauren was uh you know the the first the first few advertisements for the event uh touted the fact that lauren was going to be the the special speaker like that you know she's a real star and she's going to address local conservatives uh, you know about you know race and nation and who's no, who knows what else however uh, there was a minor backlash and she was disinvited uh, wow. from appearing on CPAC so there is kind of uh, and and I guess I would I read that as being certain kinds of sensitivities you know the, the Christchurch killer was an Australian um, he was born and bred here before he you know went to Aotearoa New Zealand to uh, conduct this awful atrocity he titled his manifesto what he did obviously you know these sorts of ideas are in circulation are being adopted by you know violent extremists and then enacted and i think there was some pressure on the part of cpac mm. given the and and the other speakers are very impeccably credentialed establishment figures i think tony abbott was one you know a former prime minister all sorts of people were kind of a part of this you know conservative so-called element within australian politics but i think that that was just 
for the time being, just a bridge too far. Right. However, she is she's relocated to Australia. She now lives in Sydney. You know, she's a, a there were discussions about considerations, and this applies both to Lauren Southern, but also uh, Milo Yiannopoulos, uh, Gavin McInnes, Tommy Robinson, a whole range of other kind of alt right and alt right figures. My kind of reading of the situation is that once those careers have begun to peter out in places in markets like the United States or Canada, Australia is the next best, next best thing. Okay. And so there's quite an appetite and quite an audience for for Lauren, for Milo, for all these other figures whose stars have dimmed elsewhere. But anyway, that's a roundabout way of getting to the question about um, you know, what role do institutions like CPAC, because I think I believe you've reported on CPAC, yeah. what role do you think they have in terms of uh, influencing uh, the current and future direction of an institution like the Republican Party? Mm. Yeah, I mean, so that, that kind of tension you're describing about like whether or not Lauren Southern could speak at CPAC is something, is a, like a very similar tension at every CPAC every year because they basically, they basically decide which extremists they're going to not allow in or kick out and which extremists they're going to give uh, featured spots on the main stage to talk. So like CPAC every year is just like, it's such a circus and it's just kind of, it's where you really see the Republican party for what it is. And like the, the different factions that really make, make it up. I've gone the last two years with the purpose of just, you know, kind of identifying all the kind of extremist elements there. It's always interesting, you know, who they allow into the fold you know, one year, Steve King, you know, Steve King was basically who, for your listeners who maybe not don't know who it is, you know, Steve King's like a, basically a white nationalist congressman here who recently lost and is no longer in Congress. But, you know, he was kind of a pariah in the Republican Party and like got stripped of his committee seats and, and all this stuff. But, you know, then I saw him last year at CPAC and he was just kind of buddying up to people and then kind of ended up speaking on a panel and was like a featured panelist at CPAC. And then it's also one of the more significant parts has been the development of uh, the Groyper movement, like the America First Groyper movement, which is run by this guy, Nick Fuentes, who is young. He's like only 22, 23. And he was in Charlottesville, but he's kind of managed to rebrand this very specific segment of the alt-right into kind of like this Christian nationalist America first bullshit, which has given him some entry into the Republican Party. And I think basically CPAC is always a place where people are trying to gauge that and like see how, like see what they can get away with and how far they can go and so still be allowed in the GOP fold and basically not be a headache for like Republican Party leaders. You often see Nick Fuentes kind of on the fringes of, of CPAC, I think, trying to to figure that out. You know, at this point, like CPAC, the last few years has just been two big Trump rallies. And in a lot of ways is kind of thrown to relief that the Republican Party here has always been, you know, a far right party and has always allowed these people in the fold. But maybe we're just paying a little more attention now. Chris, I wanted to ask your observations about something based on several years reporting, which is Islamophobia seemed to be a kind of core component of conservative or, or far-right politics in the United States. And there seems to have been 
you know, there are various anti-Semitic currents that are battling for, which incorporate Islamophobia, but which are increasingly, well, are becoming more prominent. And yet at the same time, that, that as I read it, that's kind of like, a, for some, a bit of a, a bridge too far. It's possible to, and this is based on, I guess, the, the general ambience created by the war on terror to portray Muslims as, as, you know, demonic or terrorist or, you know, constituting a real threat, that the same kinds of um, tropes being applied to uh, Jewish peoples has been less, you know, it seems to create more uh, opposition, including within you know, uh, some elements of the far right, at least. My feeling is that, however, that anti-Semitic component is becoming increasingly prominent. Yeah. And so I wanted to, to um, gauge your kind of understanding of how that's played out, whether it's in the, the context of the alt-right or the Republican Party and American society more generally. Mm-hmm. How do you think these two twin uh, and in some ways closely related prejudices are kind of uh, faring on the um, American political landscape currently and what do you think you can say about their futures yeah i think that's spot on well i think so as far as anti-semitism is concerned the thing that i one of the developments i find very interesting is uh nick fuentes who i was just talking about the kind of groiper america first movement is like so explicitly anti-semitic and like a straight up like holocaust denier and you know i've sat through kind of hours long podcasts he's done online where you just him and his guests just say like the most vile shit um, about about uh, Jewish people. Yet he's still given some entree, some entry to like you know mainstream Republican circles. And then obviously like the GOP here still often attempts to weaponize anti-Semitism for their own purposes with these kind of, in my opinion, often bad faith attempts. You know where they will lash out at predominantly like our congresswomen of color here who are critical of Israel. And those, those examples being like Rashida Tlaib and Yohan Omar, who especially recently with what's going on in Israel and Palestine have spoken up a lot. And the Republican Party always goes full speed ahead, uh, attempting to turn those comments into, to, to make them out to be anti-Semitic. So there's like kind of this weird tension or push and pull, I guess, on on the right here where, you know, they're kind of weaponizing these bad face attack, bad faith attacks of anti-Semitism while on their right hand side allowing explicit anti-Semitic anti-Semites into their into their into their fold. And then and then when it comes to Islamophobia, I mean, it's still like the most acceptable form of bigotry here and like the most acceptable form of like explicit bigotry here you know you aren't going to be necessarily canceled for uh or you know lose your position if you speak in very explicitly anti-muslim terms about you know those countries over there being barbaric or islam being a barbaric religion or all that all that dumb shit there's still not a ton of consequences in the republican party for for saying that stuff. I think thankfully it's has slightly less, there's slightly less energy there than there was maybe a few years ago. It's, it's hard to overstate like what uh, Trump, you know, wanting to ban all Muslims from entering the country did for Islamophobia in this country is, you know, really gave it a lot of energy. And, you know, thankfully 
maybe that's the energy's diminished ever so slightly, but it's still very much a problem here. I guess just finally, Chris, you've talked about you know having to watch a lot of nasty and listen to a lot of awful stuff. What's the emotional impact that consuming this sort of material has on you, and how, how do you deal with it? And has it changed your perception of the world? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I think I'd be lying if it if it didn't take take its toll, and I'm sure you guys experience this too. Uh, you know, like I like I was saying earlier, I think it has radicalized me a bit because you get like kind of a front row seat to how not fringe the fringe is, and you kind of see this propaganda pipeline, right? You know, where you see these fascist talking points make their way into the mainstream, and you realize how people in power allied with some of the you know most evil people you've ever heard talk it's, def- it's definitely radicalized me a bit and made me feel like this all this stuff is much more of an urgent problem than maybe i would have before i think the but the flip side that to that though is that you know covering this stuff for so long i've also met some of the best people ever who are working really hard and very thoughtfully and with a lot of compassion and love about like how to fight these movements that has been always like been incredibly inspiring i think i I always i like to joke that the like or not joke i don't like the the moments like on the speed where i've like gotten emotional or you know maybe cried a little or whatever it's not at like how it's it's never at like you know watching someone be evil or like like it's disturbing but the stuff that like actually makes me emotional is like seeing communities come together and like um, respond to this shit like that that stuff's always really inspiring like being in pittsburgh after the tree of life massacre at the synagogue there and like seeing that community come together just like extremely beautiful like so sad obviously but obviously like incredibly inspiring and beautiful so yeah i mean and then you know besides that i i drink a lot so that helps (laughs) well chris on that note uh we've run out of time if people want to read more of your work Obviously, check out the Huffington Post or you're on Twitter at Let's Go Matthias. Thanks for joining us, Chris. Yeah, it's an honor, guys. It's, it's really nice. Thanks so much for having me. All right, folks, we're out of time. We'll catch you next week. Global Intifada is up next. See you later. Bye-bye. Whoa! Same tricks they used before. They're trying to divide us, but that
us to protest the forced evictions and ethnic cleansing in Palestine. This Saturday, May 22nd at 1pm, outside the State Library. Along with your signs and banners, please bring your masks and hand sanitizer to keep the rally COVID safe. For more information, head to Free Palestine Melbourne's Facebook page. A 3CR supporter. CR's annual Radiothon fundraiser launches in June, and this year we're asking you to be part of community-powered radio. It's only with your support that we're able to be independent, community-controlled, and focused on people rather than profits. Your support during Radiothon powers the station to give voice to hundreds of people and issues for another year. And remember, any amount you can afford makes a big difference, and all donations over $2 are tax-deductible. 3CR Radiothon. Show your support during June 2021. 3CR Community Powered Radio. 